Astonishing Legends is supported by Harry's, The Great Courses Plus, the podcast Remarkable Lives, Tragic Deaths, and ZipRecruiter. Hi, folks. We're back. For tonight's show, we asked some of you to phone in some segues for our commercials, and boy, did you ever deliver. We had more submissions than we knew what to do with, so thank you very much. If this works, we'll continue with it in the future. Well, we're heading into our favorite time of year here, close to Halloween. We'll not take responsibility for sleep lost related to the topics of our next couple of shows, but we can take responsibility for the bad dreams they might bring. We'd like to point out that Astonishing Legends is mixed for your headphones, but will still sound great in your car or over your high-fidelity system. So sit back, settle in for your commute, or crack a bottle of wine by the fire, but please not both, and enjoy our first show of the Halloween season. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. A scarecrow is just a hoodlum who marked the cards that he dealed and pulled a gypsy switch out on the edge of Potter's Field. Tom Waits, Potter's Field, 1977. Join us tonight for a series of stories about what it was like to enjoy both the freedom and the risk of being a kid in the 70s. Tonight we're going to talk to an old friend of mine that I worked with for about, I think it was about seven years in New York City in the bitter trenches of television commercial. Post-production. Post-production, yeah. Was he an editor? No, he was a special effects guy and a finishing guy. Oh, yeah. you mean like uh, After Effects? No, uh, uh, higher Harry, level. Spark, uh, Fire, Flame, flame Flint. Flame. <laughs> Those based yeah, on uh, Ignition. Yeah. Yeah. He was doing the fancy stuff and he's still oh, doing it. Okay. Of course, back then you had to have a big, expensive computer, and now I believe he actually can work from home on a laptop. I see. So, but let me ask you this, because I worked in post-production as well. Back in the old days, there was a lot of what we called render time. Yes. And uh, when you chatted with him about these stories, when did that happen? Over lunch or during a session, no, post-session? No, he was working, and we actually had to restart the call because he was rendering something, and the yeah. hard drive was making so much noise, <laughs> we right. had to start over. Oh, boy. <laughs> Jeez. So the rendering's still happening, I bet. Yeah. But anyway, it's not a pretty job, but somebody has to do it. Right. He, it's a long, tedious kind of job. Yes. It can be. Right? Yes. And it takes an artistic eye. Of which, course. Uh, which of course. he has. And the gentleman I'm talking about, his name is David Sullivan. And he has four stories that I remember him telling me when we worked together. And the first one is pretty funny. It's still a story that I like to tell other people. Right. The second one is a twist of fate kind of story, a what-if story, which will have yeah. you scratching your head for sure. The third one, well, let's just say <laughs> it's extremely macabre. And there's a fourth one after that with a little comic relief to round things out. But it's Halloween. And that's one of the things we like to do is share stories with you that you're not likely to forget. And I can almost guarantee you're not going to forget this story tonight. Well, everybody knows somebody, a close friend even, or just a passing acquaintance who does something kind of strange. Yeah. And this goes past that. Um, speaking of which, this is a good time to issue a warning. Some listeners may find that third story particularly disturbing. We're going to warn you before it gets to the most gruesome part of it, but just be on the lookout for maybe taking a little pause. And if you're trying to go to sleep, I don't know if you want to. <laughs> you might want to pick it up in the morning. It does deal with the macabre. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Macabre. Yeah. You really got to troll the end there. Yeah. Let me ask you a question for us. When you were a kid, did you ever read the Choose Your Own Adventure books? 
I'd heard of them. I didn't really get into those. Oh, my God. I loved them because you could pick how the story was going to unfold. It was written in a way that you could make these choices. There was one that I particularly remember. I had to look it up because I couldn't remember the name, but it was called Inside UFO 5440. Oh, really? I loved it. That title yeah. does sound like something I might have made up in the 10th grade. But Was it that you could choose the ending or different pans along the story? When you get to the end of a chapter, yeah. you can choose which chapter you want to go to next. So you make a choice. Oh. And there's all these different ways that the story can be told. So it's a 20,000-page book. Yeah, and it just, you know what it <laughs> says right on the cover? Yeah. It's, no, it's not that thick. It's yeah. very well done. Right on the cover, it says, you're the star of the story. Choose from 40 possible endings. I think I remember a film... It was kind of early technology where you had a button on your armrest of your theater chair and you could pick, as the story would pause, you could pick what you wanted the character to do. Right. I remember that, but not so much the uh, not having gotten into those storybooks, though. But that sounds cool. The thing about this particular one, UFO 5440, was that it had this one kind of special ending. And the only way that you could get there is by making unorthodox choices as you went through the book. This was a fun thing, too. You could read them over and over and pick a different outcome for the book. And the thing that made me think of this story and made me think of Choose Your Own Adventure was I feel a little bit like David Sullivan, who we're going to be talking to tonight or we're going to hear the interview from, he got to choose his own adventures a lot when he was a kid. And he grew up in an interesting place and an exciting time. And, and I tell you what, back in the 70s, when you and I were kids, we're a few years apart, but close enough, we kind of had free reign a lot more than kids do now. I Certainly more than my son does. Look, a lot of it depends on where you're growing up. If you grew up in a rural area or even suburban, you have a lot more space. And I know the time's different, but when I was growing up, we had a very large field and we could ride our bikes and make forts. Yeah. And basically, people of a certain age will just tell you it was come back before dinner. By the way, here we are sitting in a fort right now. Nothing's <laughs> no, changed. Okay. Except this one's <laughs> made of foam, not rocks and weeds. Yeah. That was the thing, especially in the summer during break. It's just come back before dinner. So, and basically, it was get out of the house. There yeah. wasn't all day inside playing video games. Yeah, exactly. No. So that's the whole point of this. David gets out of the house a lot. In fact, maybe that's what this show should have been called tonight, <laughs> getting out of the house, because he really got out of the house. Yeah. And the very first story is about getting out into the backyard of his new house in upstate New York. As an adult, though. As an adult. And let me ask <laughs> well, you Well, an adult with a, with a child, a bit of a childish <laughs> theme there, yeah. Have you ever tried to befriend a wild animal like a little squirrel or well, a raccoon. you saying that, there's two aspects of that that yeah. you just popped into my mind. You saying squirrel reminds me of a much beloved episode of This American Life called Squirrel Cop. Oh, okay. And it's when they do the best of, it's always featured. Uh-huh. And it's just things going wrong when two police officers are called to take care of a squirrel that's gotten into somebody's fireplace. Oh, I've heard about that one. I haven't yes, heard that episode, it's, but it's, I have heard about it. It's just a series of an unfortunate outcomes with this squirrel that causes one disaster after the next. I can relate to that. I actually had to capture a squirrel for a friend of uh, mine and my wife's when we were younger, in college, actually. Okay. And it had gotten into her condo. And I <laughs> what, used with a, a pillowcase? We found a bucket, not the painter's bucket, but the one that has the caulk in it, you know? Yes, yeah. One of those big buckets. And yeah. I went into the bathroom where it was madly climbing the shower curtains. Right. Trying and I opened the lid up and put it down, and much to my surprise and pleasure, it ran right into the bucket. And I put the lid on and took it outside. <laughs> wow. He knew <laughs> but, that well, was a, yeah, way, a quick way out. The yeah. only problem was when I opened the lid, it ran out and made a beeline right back for the back door. Oh, jeez. But oh, what, to get back inside? Yeah. Yeah, because it's shelter. <laughs> the door was closed. <laughs> well, that's like, stupid squirrel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look, they don't know from bucket to house. They just want to hide. They want yeah. shelter. But it also brings up an important point that we're going to touch on just a little bit. Do not try and befriend or help a wild animal 
when you're not animal control. Let's find out when uh, David Sullivan actually did that and uh, let you know what happened to him. All right, it's been a while since we've done a personal story, and that's because we felt like maybe some of the early ones we did didn't really warrant an episode of the show. (laughs) But I have a longtime friend on the phone who I refer to as Sully, and it is not the guy that landed the plane on the Hudson. It is David Sullivan, who we worked together for years in New York City. And he was always one of my favorite people to work with because he had so many entertaining stories. (laughs) And there were two or three of them that really stood out, and I thought they might be good stories to hear, especially this time of year near Halloween. And I wanted to give him a call and see if he would tell them to us, and I did, and here he is on the phone. Hello, David. Hello, Scott. I'm happy to tell my funny stories, too. <laughs> well, I really appreciate it. I also appreciate you <laughs> I taking hope funny. Well, I remember them as being funny. If they aren't, I don't care. I'm going to run this anyway because I think it's entertaining. Very well. I remember a long time ago, you told me a story. We're going to start easy, and then we'll get to the more intense one. The first one I want to talk about is the one that you told me about a situation that you had going on at your house. The bats, I would assume. Yes, yes. Okay, right. I was trying to recall the year it is. I think we're looking at 1995 or six. I just moved upstate New York, the town of Patterson, Patterson with the two T's. At the time, I had just started out at a post-production facility in New York City, and so I was on the night shift. So I would work from, I think, about 7 to 3 or 4 a.m., something like that, and Ugh. either take the first train in the morning back up into New York, or sometimes I drove. Anyway, this one morning I got home, it was just before dawn. We'd just moved there, so I was appreciating living in the country, and I was standing on our sort of back deck looking out and smelling the air. and <laughs> It's a real, like, funny farm kind of moment. You remember that movie? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, because kids from the city moves to the country kind of a thing, and I was just a little too involved with the country that morning. I heard something out there, a little critter or something, so I was trying to, I guess, communicate with it or chat with it, so I was making, you know, little chirpy sounds. Like, no. I won't, even, I won't even try. Please, no, uh, please a little do, chirpy please. Sound. Suddenly, I had this feeling in my face, and it's like hair and, and wings and just disgustingness. It was a bat oh. flying in my face, which somehow I attracted uh, it <laughs> to me, and I freaked out. I don't really recall exactly what I was doing, but I do know, you know, I finally composed myself. I went upstairs, crawled into bed with my wife, and she looked at me and said, who's that lady screaming outside? <laughs> yeah. So, so that was you. <laughs> it was me. I don't really have a recollection of that part of it, but yeah. uh, that was the only thing that she heard. So I have to take her at her word right. um, that I was screaming like a woman. Well, there was a bat flying in my face. <laughs> that you had called by making chirping sounds? <laughs> yeah, you know, like, I probably thought it was a squirrel or something, and maybe it liked the, the sound that I was making or something, or <laughs> annoying it terribly. But I've never had, a, like, a close encounter like that before or since. There are lots of bats upstate New York, and uh, you see them all the time. Yeah. But I'd never had one fly in my face like that, so it was shocking. So uh, it came right at you? Yeah. Like I said, I didn't really... See it other than this flutter and flurry, and I felt it. They're tiny little things, so there may have been two for all I know. It was just a blur of beating wings and screaming men. (laughs) 
<laughs> but you didn't have any more encounters. You managed to survive that and everything was okay. I survived, yeah. Right. I mean, like I said, I was really kind of thoroughly freaked out and it took me a little while to recover and then my wife was kind enough to point out that I screamed like a woman. <laughs> and she had no idea what happened. By the way, Sully's wife's name is Denise, so they are the or- original yeah. Sully and Denise, which is a callback <laughs> to a, a long since past Saturday Night Live sketch. But uh, <laughs> I don't remember that one. Sully and Denise. Oh, yeah. I think yeah. if you Google it, you'll find it. I'm pretty sure it was uh, Jimmy, uh, Jimmy Fallon and Rachel Dratch, I believe. But, oh, sure. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Hi, my name is Stephen Pipkin. Scott and Forrest want to thank you for partaking in tonight's episode of Astonishing Legends. Now, for a message from the folks who helped them keep the lights on. I keep a beard most of the time, so when I shave, it's to keep my neck clean. And as any guy knows, the neck area is the most sensitive, right? It's where you can easily get razor burn or the ingrown hairs. Lots of things can go wrong. If the blades are dull, you're going to feel it then and later. And I'm sure most of you guys have experienced razor burn at some point. Yeah, it's awful, which is why I was really excited to try out our new sponsor, Harry's.com. Big razor companies have constantly introduced new gimmicks to their products so that they can market them as new and improved and raise their prices. Which are already ridiculously high. I mean, if you sit down and do the math, you could be paying like four bucks a blade. Or more. But Harry's is just $2 a blade. They own a factory in Germany where they make the blades so they can produce high-quality razors themselves and sell them online for half the price. No markup to a manufacturer. And we're talking about a five-blade razor. Five. Definitely go to harrys.com and check out these razors. They have a nice demo that breaks down how they're designed, how functional they are, and when you're there, you'll also see that they make a great-looking product, too. Harry's five-bladed razor, which I just used this morning, now includes the softer Flex Hinge for a more comfortable glide. Works like a charm. Harry's is so confident in the quality of their blades, they'll send you their very popular trial set, which comes with a razor, five-blade cartridge, and a shaving gel for free. Yes, to all of our listeners, get your free trial set when you subscribe to harrys.com. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com. You just pay $3 for shipping. Plus, I have a special offer that's just for you guys. Enter the code LEGENDS at checkout and get a post-shave balm for free with your order. It's a great product. You'll really love it. I know because I was a customer for two years before we even started the podcast. Go to harrys.com right now, enter the code LEGENDS at checkout to claim your free trial set plus the post-shave bomb. That's harrys.com, code LEGENDS. And now, back to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Okay, let's talk about the bad story. You mean about him shrieking? Yeah, or the- <laughs> I just love everything about that story. It makes me laugh so hard. And uh, Ryan's sound design really put it over the top for me. The- it's like the praying man is flying on your arm. Oh, you're, yeah. you're in control in one second until you're not. And yeah. the, what's scary is that you have something that's not reacting to the way you thought it was, or you're just surprised, and you lose it. Forrest is referring to a video <laughs> that I made for my yeah. with my son where I had a praying mantis on. I was like, look at it. And then it went crazy and ran up my arm. I could not believe yeah. how fast. And then it's just me screaming like a woman. <laughs> it's not that there's anything wrong with I that. should post that. Maybe no, I'll post that. Look, I'm one of those people that I'm not going to gently get a spider on a broom and take him outside. He's going to get wrapped up in some tissue. But if you've ever tried that and it drops unexpectedly and starts running towards you. Oh, yeah. I can't deal with the running it's a moment, towards me. It's a moment of panic because yeah. you're now not in control anymore. And this little tiny creature 
is now uh, got the reins. You know what situation. I hate that runs at you is cockroaches. And uh, when I lived in New York, sometimes I would see them, and fortunately not in the house too often. Yeah. Like once a year there'd be one in the house. But when it makes a beeline for you, it's like faster than Marty McFly's car try, like, trying <laughs> well, to jump in time. It's yeah. like, what's the time? <laughs> yeah. You know? Well, you, you know, the, uh, we talked about this in what's gotten into you. They can sense air rushing towards them. Yeah. And, and so there's something about that I think where even scientists have kind of reversed that. So it goofs them up. But that's just a natural reaction. Yeah. Plus, they're going to get away. That's what's amazing. There's more chances of them getting away than you clobbering it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Well, ARC researcher Marissa Ball found some really great stuff on bats, including a library of bat calls and a really great recording of bats in a cave that NPR did. We have links in the show notes for that. But here's some interesting facts. Did you know they've been around for 60 million years? 60 yeah, million years. Well, and they yeah. can fly up to 40 miles per hour. Yeah. You ever seen one fly at night? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we used to actually play softball just after dark in North Carolina in the yard by my friend Buddy's house. And I remember one night we were playing, and it was dusk, and we figured out that if we hit the ball like a pop fly straight up in the air, a bat would attack the softball. Oh, really? Yeah. There were magnolia trees in the neighborhood. Yeah. If you've ever been in the South, the magnolia tree is like, when you go inside where the branches are, it's like a cave. It's yeah. a building. It's very dense, a canopy yes. of uh, petals, right? And leaves? It, yes. Thick yeah. petals, almost rubber tree plant type petals. And then so many branches, it's a piece of cake to climb. It's a dream yeah. when you're a little kid. Right. Which, you know, a lot of things that you shouldn't be doing as a little kid will come up tonight. But <laughs> yeah, don't do any of the things <laughs> we're going to be talking about. But if, we yeah. climbed the tree, and I remember we got like halfway up it. And like a thousand bats, oh my goodness, flew out of the tree and really? again screaming like a little girl. Of course, at that point, it's prepubescent. My voice probably was like a little girl. Sounded like that. We came down out of that tree so fast. It was at night. Yeah, it was in the evening. Okay, so so basically, you just rouse them. Yeah, they go out to feed at night anyway. That's when the bugs come out at dusk. Yeah, so we would see them down by the river. If there's a street light, you can see bugs collecting, and you would just see this flash. Like yeah, and it looks kind of erratic, but they know what they're doing. It's just like a that, whisk. There's a bridge in Austin, I believe. Where Congress famously, Avenue Bridge. Yeah, where yeah. they famously come every night. And people go to watch them. Oh yeah, for like it. almost twenty years now. But right. you know what? No one's ever contracted rabies. And that's a really good point. And before we get on to the rabies talk, I did want to point out that bats eat half their body weight in insects every night. That's why you want them around. They're actually very beneficial in that if they weren't around, you would just be flooded with insects. So they do a very important function. Here's another article that Marissa found. Lorraine and Steve Disberger moved out of their home of 15 years last month when a colony of more than 2,000 brown bats moved in. This is not too far. This was in Hackensack, New Jersey, by the way, from the... uh, the Hackensack record, I guess. Mm -hmm. Not too far from where Sully lived. They haven't been back since July 15th. This was August 26th, 1988. This story was published, which actually coincidentally was my birthday. Oh, happy birthday. How old was I in? 1988. Let's not talk about it. Okay. Anyway, so (laughs) they haven't been back since July 15th, except to do laundry and grab a few possessions. After dark each day, the couple watches bats flutter in and out of the yellow wood frame house in central New York. Oh, it's not in New Jersey. Either way, Mm -hmm. upstate. They said they haven't been able to find anyone to help them solve their problem, largely because they have trouble getting people to believe them. I'll never forget the night we left, Lorraine said. It was in the middle of the night, but we weren't sleeping. I couldn't sleep. I was too scared. You could hear them. It was one of those hot nights. And it was like the house was breathing. <laughs> well, they rustle with their little wings there as they're roosting. But uh, remember that movie uh, Nightwing? That was a uh, David Warner, one of my favorite character actors. They were trying to 
solve the problem of swarming vampire bats. Uh, oh, I never Southwest. saw that. I remember the movie, but I never saw it. It's creepy because anything swarming, yeah. and I don't care what it is, yeah. you know. Look, if you woke up and your house was filled with 2,000 bunny rabbits, you'd be freaking out. That's why I never yeah. like going to Times Square. Too many people? Yeah. Or bats? Swarming rats? People. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> like rats the size of house cats there, we, we'd mentioned before. But yeah. did you know that rodents very rarely contract rabies? You did a little digging on rabies. Well, right? I don't know if we're ready to go there because it's a dark, dark place, Scott. Yeah. <laughs> it really is. Hey, well, it's, the, it's Halloween. There's a warning coming up because yeah. just the thought of it, it's yeah. insidious in the very worst ways. So tell me about it. Why, you what ready? is it? You're ready? You're ready? This okay. is, I love the idea of Sully listening to this. He probably never thought about the possibility <laughs> of rabies. Right now, wherever yeah. he is, he's going to be listening to this episode. He's be like, oh, this one's got me in it. By the way, he was a listener beforehand, but he's going to hear it. Right. And at, at this very moment, he's going to be like, oh, man, I could have gotten rabies. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does happen, I would say. And here's a public service announcement. If you think you've come into contact with a bat, like if one flew in his face, check for scratches or bites. They have little tiny teeth. I mean, he probably would have felt it, but the advice is if you wake up and there's a bat in your room and you're not sure if you got scratched or bitten in the middle of the night, you should go to your doctor to check. And the first thing you should do really, if you see a bite, is scrub it thoroughly with soap and water, a mild soap and water for at least 15 minutes, a little povidone iodine on the site and go directly to your doctor. Okay. Uh, Because rabies has a mind of its own. And it's one of those viral infectious diseases that controls its host to further its own ends of survival. Oh, like toxoplasmosis. Yes, which I believe you have. And I'm going to say- I don't have it. That's the cat litter one, people. <laughs> well, well, we'll we'll be testing that makes later you love on. cats, so it can oh, you, go yeah. to another cat. I well, don't have it. Yeah, that's a crazy a one. in a long time. Okay, well, uh, to to be discussed later, but in another podcast where it's just about crazy parasites, but remember the movie 28 Days? Of course. It's about as close as you're going to get to a rage virus. And thank goodness, there is a very agitated state, more so with animals when they they become infected, because there's one type of rabies called furious rabies, (laughs) and in animals, they become very aggressive, and that's when they can bite you. Okay. And uh, Cujo, come yeah. on, Stephen King. Sure. But fortunately, as I was saying, with Old humans. <laughs> oh, that's right. Oh, that's sad. Well, there's no hope for any creature infected. Very yeah. little. It's really deadly, right? It's more deadly than Ebola. Uh, you, have no. a, you have a better chance of surviving Ebola. I believe if you're 49 years and above, you have a, was it 97% chance? Yeah. Over 45, the fatality rate is 94%. Yeah. If you're up to age 21, it's 47%? 57%. Sorry, sorry, 57% chance yeah. of survival. So there you go. If you're at any age with rabies, it's about 99%. So How, how many people have survived full-blown rabies in the world? I think in, in modern recorded history, about five <sighs> that did not respond to any kind of treatment because there's really nothing they can do for you. By the way, yeah. folks, we've got it in our show notes again if you're wide awake after this episode. <laughs> oh, geez. You and want a, you a nice little bedtime a, yeah, movie? Little bedtime yeah. movie. There's a YouTube video that we have of a village in Iran. Was it in Iran? I think? Yeah, it was in the, deep in the countryside. So these are remote villagers. Yeah. And somehow, a, I don't know the backstory. Like 25 people were all bitten by the same wolf. A was very, it a wolf or a rabbit or coyote. dog? coyote. 
Or it it was, wasn't? Yeah. Yeah, it was a coyote or, or maybe it was a dog. Well, here's an interesting- Whatever it was. Yeah, they here, were all bitten by this particular canine which was, was super busy. <laughs> he just went around a different, hey, doggy, and then- uh, I'm sorry, it's not funny. No. It's a horrible, but, horrible video of a man yeah. contracting well, rabies and basically dying uh, on the video. And the music- Oh, this is what I told Scott. It's like Chris Cogswell uh, dug this one up, this yeah. little gem. But it's an old science film directed at microbiologists, I think produced by UC Davis. Right. Um, That's and, right, UC Davis. And what it is is basically they're just documenting this guy slowly dying, going through all the stages of rabies. And once you start to show neurological symptoms, you're done for. There's really no hope for you. Yeah, this we're is gonna, it's a well, disturbing video, but We're going to talk about a little bit of hope. But first, yeah. the hopeless one. And there's music that they put to this, which is just creepy yeah. as heck. Yeah. It's just, why that if music? If you're a horror yeah. film composer, I yeah. would strongly advise you to go to this thing for, <laughs> it's, for inspiration. Uh, oh, it's very impactful. Like, you didn't need any music at all. I mean, I wouldn't put that cheerful music you hear at 50 science films that you used to see as a kid, but this one just really brings it home. But what you see is this guy basically going through all the stages. Here are the kind of the symptoms and stages. And the incubation period can be as short as four days has been reported or longer than six years. Between, six years? Yeah, between bite and when you start to manifest symptoms. Okay, Sully, I think you're out of the woods. Maybe. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I know it's been longer than six yeah, years. Yeah, no, no. You, I haven't seen him in six years. <laughs> <laughs> well, we know he's still alive. Yeah. The first symptoms you get is you might start to feel like you have a flu. When you first get bit, you might feel some tingling, and that might go away. But basically, yeah, around where the bite site is, you you might feel some tingling, dizziness, just general lethargy, kind of like you have the flu. And then that might progress to dizziness, hallucinations, double vision, what about uh, loss the, of balance. What about the hydrophobia? Yeah, that That's happens. part of its self-preservation, or it tries to get itself propagated to another host, right? Well, here's the insidious part of it. Like any virus, the idea is not that the individual bug itself is trying to survive. It's trying to survive as a species, as an entity, as a thing. So to propagate that, how does it do that? Through the bite. So what it does is it makes the host hydrophobic, meaning you are fearing water and you have a severe thirst or hunger. But when you try to bring a glass of water up to your lips you will shake so violently the water will spill out. You simply cannot drink. And so the, even the thought of bringing water up to your lips, let alone drinking it, causes such a painful convulsion in your throat and larynx that you simply cannot. And you basically then just start salivating and foaming at the mouth. That's what you always see, you know, dogs and animals foaming at the mouth. Which is its goal. Its right. goal is to be concentrated into a bite. And if an animal or a human could drink water, that would lessen its effectiveness. Yeah. And in the uh, video we were referring to, there's a point at which the patient tries to bite the nurse. Well, he's wiping he, he, his mouth. Yeah, she, I don't know if he's doing that, but he's basically it convulsing. a lot like it to me. Well, you're now only, jumping to a, a 28 I days I am not. Thing. No, she's very cautious of that because yeah. that's where it's transmitted is the bite. And she, of course, this is the 50s, I think. She's not wearing gloves. Yeah. But she's rightfully jumpy. Yeah. But basically, yeah, you're convulsing and twitching. And so that's kind of the violent jerking phase. But that's the idea. It wants to be concentrated in your saliva because that's kind of where the virus rests. Now, the other thing is that it's basically making its way to your brain to swell it. 
And basically, once it gets to your brain, you have very little time. So you could die within a, a few days, three or four days to about a week, 14 days. All so. right. So before we move on to Sully's next story, let's talk a little bit about the one girl that recently survived. She first survived a full-blown case, right? So Yeah, she's one of the five. She was in church, I believe. First yeah. of all, there's a great radio lab on this. Oh, yeah, We'll have a link to. That's the it's, show that got us into podcasting, really. Right. It's, it's called amazing. Rodney versus Death. That's the episode. We'll have a link to it, but you can search it right now. And it talks about Gina Giese, who was 14 at the time in the year 2004. Actually, it's a good cautionary tale because what happened was that there was a bat that flew into church and it was flying at people kind of erratically. It was causing a commotion here while services are going on. Then it kind of finally fell on the carpet. And Gina, being a kid, of course, who loves animals, went over to pick it up and take it outside, you know, administer aid, which you should not do barehanded, as we'll find out. Because what happened is that it bit her in her left index finger. So her parents said, oh, well, we should, you know, clean that out with a little hydrogen peroxide and wash that up. And then they kind of forgot about it, which is what you should not do. You should immediately go to your doctor because they can do something for you then. Because as I said, once you start to develop symptoms like Gina did, it's kind of too late because she started feeling just really awful, had double vision, had trouble walking, had a little bit of paralysis, and she was going to school at the time. And so they took her to the doctor. And Yeah, there was was a lot of stuff that was kind of similar to what happened to the boy in the sludge entity. Yeah, there's actually a lot of uh, similar symptoms. And before you say that's what it was, you don't recover from rabies. Yeah, he would be be no longer with us. Exactly. So basically what happens is that her doctor, as you'll hear in the Radiolab episode, should you choose to listen to it, is that she was cured eventually by her doctor, Dr. Rodney Willoughby. Yes. Who then was basically famous for the Milwaukee Protocol. Which Which he created to cure her. Yeah, it's based on theory. And the theory was that it's not the rabies itself, because what it's doing is that it's inching its way along your peripheral nerves, heading on its way to your brain about a, a centimeter a day. So before it gets there, what they can do is kind of put you into a coma because the theory is that... His theory at this time, which yeah, had never been tried before. Yeah, it hadn't really been tested, but the thought was that It's not the rabies itself that's actually causing the damage, or the damage is not permanent from the rabies. It's a temporary thing, but the damage is so severe while it's happening, that's what actually causes the symptoms of leading to death. So, And the immune system is capable of fighting it. But the problem is the rabies is faster than the immune system. His theory was if we can put her into a coma, we can slow down its progression long enough for the immune system to be able to fight back. Yeah, exactly. So he's letting her own immune system do the fighting because now the virus is in her, but it's got a fighting chance. It's not being attacked constantly and overwhelmed. So they induce a chemical coma using ketamine. Special K. (laughs) And a bunch of other club designer club drugs. Yeah, Yeah. kids, again, stay away from that one. It's uh, midazolam and ribavirin and amantadine. So again, it puts you into this coma. And for her, after 31 days of isolation and 76 days in the hospital, she started to get better. Now, she still messed up. She had to relearn everything, walking, moving around. Right. Like she said, she was a baby again. So again, I don't recommend it. If you do get scratched, go immediately to your doctor and have them check it out because they can't diagnose it until Yeah, the they were confused manifest. in the beginning because they didn't know what was wrong with well, her. Well, they didn't and mention it. it. Them, the, yeah, they were yeah. like, oh, well, yeah, she was bit by that bat a month ago or whatever. And they're like, yeah. what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> she reminded her mother, I think, oh, yeah, there was that bat. Remember that? If you do get bitten, 
they inject you with a rabies immunoglobulin near the injection site. And then you go back for a course of like four other shots within the 14 day period. Remember when you were a kid, I'd always heard it was like, it's 15 painful shots. Yeah. In the stomach. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what the story is, is that it's 17 shots into the stomach muscle and it was painful, (sighs) but they don't do that anymore. No, that's what they talked about when I was a kid. Yeah. You don't have to worry too much in the United States because we have such a good vaccination program for dogs here. The rest of the world, dogs are the main carriers yeah. that, that get people anyway. Right. right. Usually in Asia and Africa where they don't have that as good a control. But we have a great animal vaccination program and control program here. So you usually don't get it from dog bites, which is I think it's 95 to 99 percent of the rest of the world. That's how people get it. And you don't have the cures here. But even with the Milwaukee Protocol, your chances of survival are now 8 <sighs> percent. A small fighting chance, which you didn't have before, but not a very good one. So most of the rabies cases in the United States are from bats. It's not very common, but... So Sully was very close to... (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, no, if it flew into your face, again, check... He was right to scream like a lady. Yeah, well, yeah. Not that there's anything wrong with screaming. No. Like that. Especially if you're a lady. <laughs> it's not great if you're a dude. It was just very embarrassing <laughs> for him. And again, not looking very manly in the eyes of his wife. But so here's an interesting fact here. So rabies causes about 24,000 to 60,000 deaths per year. That's a lot. And if you think about Ebola, which everyone was freaked out about, from Ebola's discovery in 1976, there's just about 25 outbreaks in 37 years killing around 1,500 people. Now, that's a very awful one because you basically liquefy from the inside. Yeah. But you have a fighting chance with that one if they catch you in time. And that was uh, some facts here from the DailyMail.com article that we'll share. But basically, don't catch rabies and uh, don't handle bats. If you see one, call animal control. Do not try and pick one up and nurse it back to health. (laughs) Most of them that are just sick do not have rabies. That's the other thing. But it does happen. It does. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to story number two here from Mr. Sullivan. Okay. So anyway, speaking of Denise, she had another story that took place in the city, right? That was a little more higher stakes kind of story. This date I know because she was in her eighth month of pregnancy of first daughter. December of 1989, my daughter Sarah was born successfully in January of ninety. Okay. We lived at the time on the Upper East Side on 74th and like 2nd Avenue. We lived on the 4th floor, but it was a high-rise building. I think there were 21 floors. So we had, at the time, a dog named Ganache, who was a feisty little fella, kind of a barrel-chested, looked like a corgi, but larger. He had small legs like a corgi, but he was like a burly dog, knee-high, I would say, and strong. So she was out walking Ganache. What is One ganache? Day, uh, the dog. No, but what's Maybe. that word? What is- <laughs> oh, it's a chocolate cake or like a French deep dark chocolate. Okay. Uh, I think it's actually the covering of the cake, you know, like that really delicious dark, kind of like a hostess okay. cake kind of a thing. Okay. But expensive. You know, okay. we just like the word. It's a he was a he was a ganache. So this day I was working in Midtown, another video facility. So I got a call. We had a doorman of the building calls me which was very unusual, and he was hysterical, crying, and I couldn't understand a word he was saying. But apparently what happened, Denise just got back to the entrance of the building. There was a revolving door, but the dog would never go through the revolving door. So on the side, there was a little service door, another glass doorway. She was outside. The uh, tradition was when we got back from our walk with Ganache, the doorman always had a little cookie or biscuit or something. For ganache. For ganache. Right. 
Not for Denise. Uh, not for Denise. No, <laughs> although she probably would have appreciated it. You know, she had that weird pregnancy. Yeah, right. Uh, eat weird things, so maybe a dog biscuit would work for her. So she's standing just outside the door, struggling to open it, and the door opens. The cue the doorman with the cookie holding it out for ganache, and ganache lunges, which he wasn't really a well-trained dog, so he lunged, pulled her through that doorway, and the absolute second she passed over the threshold, we had in these buildings these very large plate glass windows that there would be a plate glass and then the smaller window next to it that opened. So these plate glass windows were probably six feet by maybe four feet. Every unit had one of these. Yeah, sure. And if you had a corner, you had two. So anyway, the second she passes over the threshold, one of these plate glass windows comes dropping down exactly where she was standing. And exploded shards of glass flying everywhere. She didn't get touched somehow. The dog didn't get touched. The doorman, I was thinking about it when you asked me to tell the story. I remember the doorman had little cuts on his face from <laughs> across the hall. Wow. She didn't have a scratch. This thing, if it landed on her, I'm sure it would have just cut her in half. Right. The dog, too. Like the omen. Uh, exactly. It was like yeah. that. And it fell about 18 story it was way up right uh, in the building so it had a lot of momentum and it, this thing just obliterated it was like diamonds everywhere that's a terrible mess and she didn't get a scratch wow that's amazing and she was yeah and she was carrying our baby at the time so oh. it, was, it would have been an absolute catastrophe yeah and it's funny when we were talking about talking to you we did a little research and there's not a whole lot of experience with falling windows in the city. I actually thought we would find more cases about it. What you find is the air conditioners are falling out right. and hitting people. But yeah. even that's very low number of instances, considering all the air conditioners that are in windows. Now, I remember right. when I lived in the city, you and I used to joke about this, but you would be walking down the sidewalk and you'd get hit by the, what we used to call mystery water. <laughs> right. <laughs> and that was invariably coming down from some air conditioner up above. But That's what you're hoping for anyway. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's insane. So just a few moments, and if Ganache hadn't lunged for the treat and he yeah. hadn't offered it at that exact time, exactly. you would have lost your wife and unborn child. Yeah, it's just astounding. I never worry about being a winner, like winning anything, a lottery, a contest or anything. Moments like that, Yeah, that was the biggest prize I ever got. My wife and child and dog were obliterated by a giant piece of glass. Yeah, it, I mean, it would have been like a guillotine at that point. Yeah. You never do hear about, you know, a lot of things falling off of buildings. I mean, it happens from time to time. I think you hear more about people falling or jumping than objects. You do. And and I remember shortly before I left the city anyway, I don't know what's going on there now. Maybe you can tell me. But the biggest threat was electrical shorts that were electrifying the metal grates in the sidewalk. And that was cooking right. poor dogs and people in some right. cases. But Yeah, it's funny how that is not funny at all, but it's, it becomes <laughs> like... An epidemic. Yeah. One crazy thing happens, and then you hear it three or four times after that in reference to the electrocution. Well, yeah. It seemed like it was happening a lot. Well, the salt they put down for the roads mixes with the water, and it corrodes everything. When I had moved away, I was at the point where I was really walking around those things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or making sure that whoever was walking in front of me was not being electrocuted. Wow. Yeah, just keep a weather eye out for trouble. Yeah. Suddenly. You learn some stuff on the streets there. <laughs> 
exactly. Wow, that's amazing. That's just, do you guys ever talk about it now? I mean, that was a while ago. Does it ever come up? From time to time, but no, we don't. I mean, we've, we've told our daughter about it, and she's like, oh, I'm glad it didn't happen. Like, she's so non-faced by it. Yeah, it's just one of those think, moments that could have just changed everything, and it didn't. So then it's almost like it didn't even happen. Exactly. I tend to be more astounded or astonished. Thank you. Coin a friend. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Then Denise is like, yeah, it, it almost hit me. You know, she's very nonchalant and unfazed by it herself. Whereas me and the doorman, Dennis, were, <laughs> we were like probably screaming like, Ladies. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what? Uh, him, him and I, whenever we saw each other, we, we had to talk about it, discuss it, and we hugged a couple of times, like as if <laughs> he saved my wife's life, you know, yeah. which didn't happen, but yeah. he commiserated well. Why did it fall? You know what? We never found out. It was obviously human error, but we were just so wrapped up being glad that it wasn't a catastrophe. And then soon after, our daughter was born. So it just sort of got swept under the rug. We never followed through with any kind of legal action or anything like that. It didn't occur to us. We also never really found out what happened. Wow. We did get something from the managing agent who was running the construction. It was a new building, so there was still construction going on. Oh, okay. So So maybe it was a construction error. Yeah, something like that. And they threw us some kind of upgrade to our place, which was basically being finished when we moved in. Right. So they're like, hey, we almost killed you. You know what? We're going to put granite counters in for you. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I think that's what it was. Classic New York. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? We're going to put some uh, brass fittings on on the faucet here, okay? Hey, then forget about it. <laughs> What's well, the address sure. of this building? Do you remember? 343 E74, I think. Something like oh, that. yeah, okay. It was right next to the Greek Orthodox Church, which I believe owned the building. It was called a condop. Yeah. Art condo. Art yes. Co-op. Yes, I've heard they, about they, those. Yeah. Only in New York. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So... That's a major twist of fate story right there. A second later, a second early, things would have been much different. So many things could have changed for him. I mean, that's his wife and family. That's his daughter. Yeah. It's, but life is like that, Scott. Don't you always think, like, if I'd gotten in the car a minute later, I mean, you see an accident on the road, and heaven forbid no one's injured, but that could have been you. That happens not often, but it does happen. In 2008, of the 54,193 people who died in New York City, 1,044 deaths excluding drug overdoses, were classified by the city's Department of Health and Mental Hygiene as accidental. City officials track the accidental deaths, rank them. I don't know what that means. Well, mm. this was a good one. <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> exciting or yeah, interesting. And yeah. they study them with an eye toward developing interventions for certain dangers and to decrease these situations, in quotes, said Barney Kirker, an assistant commissioner in the health department's Bureau of Epidemiology Services. There are roughly 6,000 codes used to define deaths by accident, reflecting all types of violence and disorder. People are run over by cars, buses, or taxis. There are dozens of codes to define deaths from drug consumption. Some die from the smoke and flame of fires, or they fall at construction sites or in their own backyards. Others are hit by trains, drown at beaches, or crash their bicycles. Just about every week, in fact, someone is killed while walking in New York City. Seven pedestrians were fatally struck by vehicles from January 3rd 
to 9th, the police said. By January 27th, the tally was 17. That was this year. You have a huge concentration of humanity, so something's going to happen. Yeah. I rode my bike to work roughly four out of five days a week for like five years. Yeah. Did you ever have any close calls? Well, I did have some near calls, but not with cars so much because most of my trip was on the West Side Highway and there's a bike path. I see. It was mostly other cyclists and roller skaters. Yeah. And I had one collision (laughs) with another bike and it was climbing this really steep hill. And the guy was just kind of erratically doing yeah. that thing with the handlebars, and he cut over because oh. I was coming up the hill pretty quick. He's doing the leg pumping thing, swinging back yeah, and forth. Yeah, yeah. And I bumped into him, and it was fine. I ran over <laughs> a rat once, too. Oh, it, running across the road? It ran across the bike path. This was, like, after dark, and uh, I ran over it, and— It was fine? It kept going. It, it, Looked it back stood and, up and gave you the Bronx cheer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I loved doing that ride. The last part of it, I did have to ride a few blocks through traffic in Soho. Yeah. But— I never felt really in any serious danger. There was, however, you know, they have these things called ghost bikes, which they put up whenever somebody gets killed. And there were ghost bikes all over Manhattan. That's where they take a bike, an old bike, and they spray paint it white. Yeah. And they put it where the person was killed. And then people come and bring flowers and candles and stuff. And there was a guy that was killed on the highway, on the West Side Highway, during the time that I was riding because a drunk driver had turned his, like, BMW onto it and tried to drive on it. And ran Uh, over the guy. Yeah. That happens here, and that's why I do ride a bike occasionally, but I'm extremely cautious. There's an overpass that goes over one of the freeways here, and the railing's a little low. It's like, you know what? Somebody jumped up on the curb with their car, and I went over the side. Not only would you be injured from the fall, you're going to get run over by another car. Yeah. That's a horrible way to go. But people live horizontally, I could say. And in New York City, people live vertically. Yeah. So you have a lot of humanity above you and things fall out of windows. Yes. And by the way, there's so many people in New York that if everyone left all the buildings at once, they would not fit on the streets. Yeah. I love that. I I think I've (laughs) told you that, which is an interesting fact, but also kind of freaks me out. Yeah. And that's why it's a great place to visit Not sure I'd want to live there for the rest of my life. But regarding the air conditioning units, Tess actually dug up a Village Voice piece specifically about AC units falling and killing people. Oh, right. Yeah. it, It quotes, According to Jennifer Gilbert, press secretary for the New York City Department of Buildings, accidents involving air conditioners are rare in New York City, but property owners of buildings seven stories and higher must submit facade reports to the department every five years to ensure that the building's exteriors are properly maintained. All property owners are responsible for the maintenance of their buildings, and are encouraged to follow the department's installation tips. So I guess if an AC unit falls from six stories, it's not a big deal? (laughs) Well, it is to the person. I read that same article and a couple of others, and here's what I gathered. There wasn't much record of people being actually killed specifically by an air conditioning unit. However, some people have been struck, and of course, from that height, very gravely injured. And one woman was, uh, sounded like she got struck on the side of her body. So Yeah, 2006. It, yeah. On, that was on Gotham as she was, uh, yeah. air conditioner fell out of a window on East 104th Street. Her right leg was crushed, the bone shattered. She also suffered broken ribs, a broken pelvis, fractured vertebra, and internal bleeding. But she was, at that time in 2006, expected to recover. You don't want to go through all that altogether, you know, or any part of it. And then there was one gentleman who was actually struck on the head. Yes. And he had major head injuries that had, you know, a couple of hour operation and a lot of staples, but he was expected to recover. So again, not actually a fatality. However, he was saved by the wine bar awning above his head at that exact moment. Again, going into 
yeah, that wasn't a great day for him, but he didn't die. Yeah. And at that right moment, he was at the wrong place at the wrong time, but right under the good awning. You can always count on the Astonishing Research Corps to draw parallels here. Chris Cogswell actually pointed out that one to 200 people a year get killed by falling coconuts. Yeah, they're heavy. I don't know if you've seen it. Well, <laughs> yes. coming off the tree, it's not the brown husk thing you see in the store. In nature, they've got an outer shell as well, and they're filled with uh, your delicious coconut water. I think statistically, yeah. the coconuts must be more dangerous. Well, he says they're more dangerous than sharks. Coconuts are, apparently. Right. And right. I guess statistically, they're more dangerous than air conditioners. And here's the other thing. Yeah. We couldn't find any story about windows falling and killing people. Like that. Oh, that's like it. Yes, what right. almost happened to Denise. In the case of air conditioners, everybody plays that up as like, oh, that's the biggest danger. But air conditioner units, yes, they're put in by incompetent people that are kind of lazy and they're propped up by books and duct tape. Yeah. But building that, not owners. Not always, by the way. No, no, no. I'm saying if they are, we, yeah, building owners are not going to allow that because yeah. now you're talking about a major lawsuit, fines from the city who go and inspect these kind of things. And, yeah, and the buildings have maintenance guys. Yeah, there's, there's, there's building they're supers. all in unions. They take it pretty serious. No, because yeah. nobody wants to hurt anybody, but people do it and they're not thinking is what happens and they're going to try and install their unit and I, just close the window down on it. I used yeah. to have a paranoia and I actually had on one of my units, which was professionally installed and yeah. very rigid, I still took the cord and tied a knot around a radiator pipe. Oh, well, there you go. See? On the off chance, because yeah. I thought, well, if this does go, maybe that'll catch it. Hey, it's better than nothing. So that has happened, but I hadn't found any fatalities that had been recorded, nor did these articles seem to point that out either. But things fall. And usually, you know, it gets windy in New York. You have canyons of steel and glass, and people will leave stuff on their balcony or their patios if they're lucky to have one, and it gets blown off. Yeah. And then also crumbling facades. Some buildings are very old there. and so Stuff you, fell off of our building that yeah, we exactly. lived in. It was a pre-war building, and we had to put up the whole the scaffolding and oh, do yeah. like two years, three years worth of work. But here's the biggest one that's been in the news that I, and I did. By the way, when I say we, what? I mean like all hundred residents, not just. Oh, did you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. You. It was a big couple hundred thousand dollar operation that had right. to happen, come out right. of the homeowner's funds and all that. Well, the one that's been making the news the most are the collapsing construction cranes. Around yeah. That a lot hand. of them have been falling down. Yeah. I don't know if that's totally neglect or human error, but that also happens and that's with much more devastating effects. And I I believe there was at least a couple of fatalities. Yeah, there have yeah. been. They've fallen on some cars. It's yeah. been bad the past couple of years, and it used to be that it yeah. wasn't such an issue. Again, statistically, not that common. You're pretty safe. I would. Yeah. Most New Yorkers, I don't, I don't think, worry about it at all. No, and the other thing that's really fascinating to me, too, about this story is the twist of fate moment. For Sully and Denise, it's their whole life, and then there's their daughter now, who I believe is college age. I'm not sure, but who knows? She could be a future president. Well, like one of the Bushes? No, I don't know. I wouldn't necessarily draw a parallel to him. <laughs> right. But yeah. uh, it's funny you should say that because I'm sure you're about to bring up – Oh, John Howland. John Howland. Yeah, which a lot of people probably don't know about this guy. But he was on the Mayflower, right? Yes. He was an indentured servant who came over on the Mayflower. I think he was born about 1599. So yeah, he was – The colonization time there. He worked as a manservant for Governor John Carver. This is from mayflowerhistory.com slash Howland, by the way. If you want to look it up, we'll have a link to it. During the Mayflower's voyage, Howland fell overboard during a storm and was almost lost at sea. But luckily for his millions of descendants living today, including President George Bush and George W. Bush and Mrs. Theodore Roosevelt. That's a weird tie-in, but yeah. <laughs> he managed to grab hold of the topsail halyards, giving the crew enough time to rescue him with a boat hook. 
Again, Halyard's coming into a, an astonishing legend story. Mary Celeste. But think about it. It's that butterfly effect, wouldn't you say? Or is that is that within the realm? Well, yeah, with this guy. And who knows? We don't know what Sully's daughter may become or her daughter's daughter or daughter's son, whatever. These kids, all of that, that whole thing could have just changed in that one instant. Yeah, so you got to wonder if she was totally unscathed and right next to this guy and he got called cut up. Is it yeah, just, and he was all the way inside. Yeah, right. She yeah. was out much closer to she it. She was pregnant and much more exposed to the shards. Yeah. So you got to wonder, is it just good timing or is it intervention of a more divine nature? Hi, my name is Trish Burdick. This story just keeps getting better and better, and we're going to get back to it in two and two. But right now, a quick message from one of our sponsors. Forrest and I have both really enjoyed our subscriptions to The Great Courses Plus. So many wonderful subjects to explore. We've learned about everything from forensic history to Chinese adventurers. And this week I was checking out Turning Points in Modern History, lecture number five, about the British East India Company, which helped Britain become a global power dominating trade worldwide. Did you just do a little character in there? I did. India. Yes. That sounds like a super cool lecture, though. I haven't seen that. Yeah, no, no, no. Well, this one's about spices. I mean, I always knew that. But you don't realize how important spices were at that time. It was as profitable as the illicit drug trade is now, and the fight to dominate these spice trading routes turned into a full-on trade war. This was the real beginning of globalization, long before you heard about it in modern terms on this year's campaign trail. It might have been the inspiration for Frank Herbert in Dune, too, right? Oh, yeah, the spice melange. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's really something for everyone to enjoy with the Great Courses Plus membership. You get unlimited access to all of the courses they offer. The professors are terrific, and it works on any device, mobile phone, tablet, laptop. You can even stream on your TV at home if you want. Scott and I want you to sign up for The Great Courses Plus, like we did. So, as one of our listeners, you'll get a full month of unlimited access to their entire library for free. I am not kidding around. The Great Courses Plus offers a huge library of topics to choose from, like history, science, literature, even photography and cooking. It goes on and on. Start your free month now. Sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. Again, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. Let's get back to the show. All right, it's time to get to Sully's last story. It's really kind of two stories, but they both take place in the same area. This next one is the one we were telling you about that's pretty intense. So like I said at the top of the show, this one's about adventure. It has some Spielberg moments in it, and it has for sure some horror moments. (laughs) Well, in in good-natured childhood adventure, there's an element that kind of worms its way in, shall we say, and it kind of turns dark. As a kid, did you ever have any friends that were kind of bad seeds? (laughs) Well, I know I I did. Look, it's— Actually, they weren't friends even. They were just like bad influences— This is how I look at it. There were some kids in my neighborhood, let's say, they know who they are. And they weren't the greatest of influences, but they also weren't the worst. It's funny because we're all friends, but if something happened that was kind of like what we're about to hear about, that would be out of their realm. You know, that's a step beyond. So yeah, again, they weren't the best kids. They weren't the worst kids. And I think we knew that. So, yeah, you didn't do everything they did, hopefully. But, yeah. So, yes, in answer to your question, there's always kids like that in every neighborhood. I think every kid has gets into a situation at some point where they're just like, oh, my God, is this happening? Well, you know, And then yeah, but with here's, somebody that's with you and you start to think, 
I feel like I'm going to get in some serious trouble here. Yeah, but here's the thing about being a kid. I've been in those situations, and as a kid, you kind of feel powerless. And yeah. sometimes you just let it happen. Or, you know, you don't let it happen. It just happens, and you feel kind of uh, paralyzed to do anything about it. All right. Well, let's go to the last part of the story with Sully. Why don't we start out? David, you tell it however you'd like, but one thing I I would like for you to do is mention where you grew up and what that is. Because even as a New Yorker, I wasn't aware of this place until you told me about it and how that put you in proximity with where the story took place. So maybe just start there with where you lived when you were a kid and how old you were and all this kind of stuff. Sure. Born and raised on City Island, which is part of the Bronx. It's actually an island that's about a mile and a half long and quarter of a mile wide at its widest, I think. Maybe a little more than that. But it's part of the Bronx. It's sort of between the Bronx and Westchester, the westernmost part of the Long Island Sound. So if you can visualize that, it's all the way towards the mainland. It's been part of New York City, I guess, forever. I don't really know that, but... um, We're going to have stuff on that. Yeah, yeah. It's becoming more popular now. It's sort of going through a little bit of a Brooklynification, you know? Oh, right. It's enjoying a renaissance now. By renaissance, you mean prices are going up 300%. Exactly. exactly. (laughs) So across on the Long Island Sound part, there's a group of smaller islands called the Pelham Islands. And one of them is named Hardart Island, H-A-R-T. And I think originally it was H-E-A-R-T, as in heart in your chest. And it somehow changed over the years. It's currently Potter's Field for New York City or parts of New York City. What is a Potter's Field? Potter's Field is where homeless or indigent people, anyone, I guess, who can't afford a proper burial would get buried on Hard Island. I would say a third of the island is comprised of Potter's Field. And what they do is, it's kind of scary. They dig a 40 by 20 trench and literally just stack pine coffins when that trench is full they bury it and start another trench nearby so there's all of these large mounds of pine boxes basically it's my understanding there's over a million people buried on the yeah island. what we discovered as kids that would be you know a pretty cool place to visit and my little group we went there quite often it was a very adventurous thing At that time, this is about 1975, I would say, the island was pretty much abandoned except for the fact that it had Potter's Field on it. There were structures. It had been a small prison in its history. Dating back to the Civil War, I think the last year of the Civil War, there was um, a prison for AWOL kind of situations. I'm not sure about that, but at the end of the Civil War, it was a prison. It was a quarantine location for many years. So if groups of people with TB didn't have a place to go, they would stick them on Hard Island and just sit them there. I don't know if you've heard about Typhoid Mary. She was sort of a famous carrier of typhoid in the late 19th century, I think, early 20th. And she sort of bounced around between locations and she spent a large amount of time on Hard Island. So it has this history of displacement, I think. Just to divert a little bit, my grandfather was the pilot of the ferry that went from City Island to Hard Island in his later years, but I was very young at the time. So I had gone over a few times with him on the ferry, so I I had access a little bit to the island before the adventures really kicked in. I think probably at the age of 13 or 14, my friends and I probably got in a rowboat. It was a good row. 
probably a half a mile yeah. to Hard Island. Okay. You know, we would run around, have our adventures, came across Potter's Field a number of times and were really grossed out by the whole situation. I, it was kind of like the Stephen King story, Stand By Me. The first couple of times we went, it was very adventurous in that regard. But then, you know, when you see a coffin in the open air, I personally was very affected by it. I didn't really enjoy it. So yeah. a couple of years later, I found myself with these bad boys, you know, guys that I didn't really hang around with. And I had to lead an expedition <laughs> to show them Potter's Field. You were the guy in the know. You were the tour guide? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I'm sure we were talking and exaggerating quite a bit. And me and my, this friend of mine, John, somehow ended up with these two bad guys that we didn't normally associate with. And they either forced us or talked us into taking them to show the bodies, which we did. We went over and I think we had a motor this time, <laughs> a little dinghy with six horsepower, something like that. Right. Go over to Hart Island and where nobody can see you, you know, what we'd have to do is my home based directly at Hart Island. So if my parents were sort of standing on the deck, they could probably see us half a mile away. And they were always looking for me to do something stupid like that. So what we would have to do is <laughs> go around to the other side of the island, just make a long loop and basically be very stealthy about it. Combat tactics. Exactly. <laughs> so I lead these guys and I have to say one guy was a really bad guy. Very, very troubled and just a delinquent. So we lead them to Potter's Field. It was a fresh delivery recently, which you could tell by the wood. It's like newer, cleaner pine. Lead them to uh, Potter's Field, this area, to the open trench. And um, this one guy approached very aggressively and actually opened a coffin. And they were nailed. Yeah, he yeah. wedged open with a bar or a pipe. Yeah. Kind of like a piece of rebar, Okay, as I recall. Wedged it open, which was very scary to me, but, you know, I sort of backed up. There was a dead man in the coffin, fully clothed, and he picked the man up, and he thought he was being funny, and was shaking him by his lapels and yelling at him, being really silly, which was really mortifying. And then he grabbed that, whatever that metal was, and he started um, beating the corpse with this pipe. Oh. I'm going to call it a pipe now. Just bludgeoning. At that point, I really freaked out, and I think I probably started crying, and I ran away. Yeah. I was not expecting... It was always scary to go there, and I always felt anguished by it, but our curiosity always came through, and we always wanted to at least see but I never wanted to see anything like that. It yeah. was just frightening to me. And this person, he was frightening to me before that day. And I remember thinking, what the hell am I doing here with this guy? You know? Yeah. It was um, very regrettable. It's a story I don't really like to tell it. <laughs> it's just part of my history, I guess. I'm actually feeling upset by it now that I'm talking about it. It's a memory that I have. I've always known it happened, but then when I start to really think about it, it just becomes extra creepy. And I don't know what happened to this guy. We did try to search him a little bit. There's just no trace of him, which is probably a good thing. But it was um, kind of a horrible thing to do. After you fled the scene, do you remember 
what the mood was going back in the boat or did you go back and you guys wait for him and or yeah me and john we went to the boat and we, you know short time after the other two knuckleheads showed up and it was very upsetting and i don't think i said anything i remember my friend john was a lot i guess bolder than i was and he was really animated in his anger you know he was very very upset as well and he let this guy know it I think I was just really in a state of shock. It was almost like I witnessed a murder. It wasn't that. He defiled a dead person. I'm pretty sure it's a crime. We'll have to look that yeah, up. Yeah, I'm sure yeah. it is. Yeah. I mean, that's also why I'm a little reluctant to talk about it sometimes because, you know, it is a crime. Yeah. After that, I really had never anything to do with this particular person. And like I said, I have no idea what he's become of. Hopefully, <laughs> he's turned the corner and become a better person because... And that particular day, he wasn't good at all. It was just horrifying. Yes, he's either become a better person who's laying low or he's in jail or dead. Yeah, I would think it's the latter rather than the former. You know, someone like that, it's like people who torture animals tend to be psychopaths. Yeah. You know? So I wouldn't be surprised if this particular person is either not with us anymore or in prison or something like that. You know, we're not sharing the name, but I briefly looked up the name that you shared with me and was horrified to find right. a serving politician in the area, right. but was thrilled when you said, no, that's not him when you looked at the picture. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. at that point, you're just like, whoa. I mean, and it totally ruined the adventure. It was bad enough. I guess it wasn't too bad that we'd go there because, you know, we were just being boys and never really did any damage to the island or um, yeah. anybody. Doing what kids did Under. in the 70s, you know? Yeah, exactly. Like, nobody's letting their kids go off in a boat now, anywhere. No. You know? I can't imagine that happening at this day and age. How old were you I guys? Mean, I might have been 14 or 15. Yeah. There was one time my friends and I went over on a surfboard, a, oh, a big God. giant surfboard, and we paddled it about a half a mile out into the sound and went to Hard Island on a surfboard. As a parent, how do you feel internally if you think about one of your kids doing that? It's frightening to me. I can't imagine not freaking out if I found out one of my kids was doing what I did. Yeah. You always think, well, you know, I was always careful or respectful, but I was just lucky. It may have been a separate story, but there was a... Mm -hmm more of a story that had kind of a archaeological right. bend to it. Was that? Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. When they dug these trenches and, you know, the island is only so big and the island is less than a mile long. You can only bury so many bodies there. So what they do, I found out subsequently, after, I don't know, 40 years or 50 years, they dig up the bodies. I don't know if they still do this. I doubt it. But they would dump what was left and it was just bones on the far west end of the island. So naturally, when we discovered this area, it was at low tide. So there was literally a pile of bones, human remains. Wow. Yeah. You know, they were so old, and I guess the tide took a lot of it away, and things just broke apart. But one time, I found a leg, <laughs> a femur. Okay. It was a big one, too, okay. from a big person. And uh, so the friend of mine found a fairly intact skull and a couple other bones and we decided wow this is cool i'm gonna bring home a bone oh man we made our way back to the city island beach where we always shoved off from beach street 
that was the name of a street, and the end of it was, you know, World Community Beach. Right, um, those were really creative names. City, Island, yeah. Beach, Street, and uh, the Community yeah. of Beach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we were a simple folk. <laughs> so anyway, we got back to Beach Street and our little bingy, and I realized I can't bring a leg home. <laughs> My parents are going to notice this leg. <laughs> so we, just, we discarded our bones right there on Beach Street. Uh, it was this old barge, which was serving as like a break water or a jetty kind of. Yeah. So we just sort of tossed it underneath the thing. And of course, a couple hours later, there's dozens of police cars <laughs> at Beach Street because somebody discovered human remains. Oh, and my God. The police sort of react to that kind of situation. Yeah. Yeah. Detectives are pounding on my door. And, you How know, far was I your house from there? Oh, I was probably 100 yards from the beach. <laughs> okay. Yeah. We were the second row of houses. There was, you know, waterfront houses. Yeah. The rich people owned. And then <laughs> the next row was the working folk right. houses. But it was very close. It was probably like a one-minute walk to the beach. So police canvassed the area, pounding on the doors, asking very serious questions about, do you know anything about these bones discovered on your local beach? Of course, I, I was good at playing dumb because that's what I did. My mom definitely knew I was into it somehow. Oh, you know, she, she asked me, Oh, yeah, because she was, uh, did not mess with the police. She was old school, and they were extremely authoritative in her world. So she was looking at me like, you tell, you tell. And I didn't say a word, but she always knew that I knew something about it. But it kind of came and went. I think the police probably figured out what happened eventually, knowing that Potter's Field is right across the water there. Yeah. And I imagine that they examined the bones, and they must have realized they were very old or whatever, but right. it was a scary moment because it was one of the first times where I felt like I could get into trouble with this situation. Yeah. Police coming out and banging on your door is never a good feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when you're guilty. And by the way, that was a separate trip to the island, right? Yeah. 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 Without the company of your corpse-beating friend. I think that was probably before the other event. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's what we'll call it. <laughs> We sort of screwed up the nerve to do all these things, and then it became a regular pastime for us. It was probably over the course of a summer Mm -hmm. in particular. You know, we went there a lot and explored and found all kinds of interesting things for kids. Yeah, it must have been Uh, exciting. I mean, it's dangerous. Your parents don't know, but there's abandoned buildings. There's dead bodies. There's, yeah. I mean, when you're a kid, you're just trying to wrap your head around death, of course. It's just right. What's yeah. more fascinating than that? Yeah, and it was—it felt like a dead island because we basically had the run of the place at that time. And like you said, there's abandoned buildings. We actually found in the late '50s, four or five years, late '50s until 1961, there was a missile installation there. It was a defensive installation to protect New York City from Soviet bombers, I guess. Yes, Nike Ajax missiles. Battery, yeah. New York, 15, NY-15, part of the United States Army base at Fort right. Slocum. Fort Slocum was nearby, is one of the Pelham Islands. That installation was comprised of, as I recall, Fort Slocum, 
David's Island and Hard Island. Right. I believe the missiles were actually located on Hard Island. They were, according the, to the what I read, anyway. Yeah, and then the main control center was on David's Island, I believe, and then Fort Slocum had some other. I don't really know how they run missile bases, but you know, it was at air. Just to expand a little bit about the missiles, I got in touch with an Air Force officer who was on Hard Island in 1960 or 61, right before they shut it down. And now I don't have the notes in front of me, but just from my memory, mm-hmm. he explained to me that there was a near nuclear accident on Hard Island. It had to do with a test at the very end of this installation. They put one Nike Hercules missile, okay. which is, it has a small nuclear device on it. As I recall his story, I have it written down somewhere. They were doing a drill and did it from time to time, obviously. And there was some kind of technical glitch. So when they were shutting down this test, they realized that there was some kind of safety key still engaged in the actual missile, which meant that because of the glitch that was occurring, and this is really frightening, whatever the system was that controlled the missile thought that the missile was fired, which meant that since this key was inserted, the bomb was ready to explode at any time. It was just pretty much the turn of the key or the press of a button. Wow. So right after that, they dismantled it. And I remember my dad telling me it seemed like one day all these naval vessels came and just cleared the place out. It was almost overnight where they took all the missiles away. They were like, yeah, this isn't Um, working. We're about to have a problem. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Wow. Which this officer told me the story. I was like, yeah, I was very skeptical about it. But it sort of makes sense because it was this frightening issue. And then they pull up the tent sticks and clear it out, never to come back. It says on Wikipedia anyway, it was a base from 56 to 61. It's like six years. It seems like a short time to spend all that money and invest in silos. Right. It does seem like that it got shut down after an emergency or something. Yeah. Yeah. Very fascinating and, again, frightening. And that's the thing about Hard Island. It has all these sort of scary, you know, It's got an energy. Yeah, no doubt. The Sinewoy Indians... Native Americans used it as a farm area and a fishing ground in the summertime. You know, it has this really deep history in New York City and America, really. And there's something scary about that island, I'm telling you. You built the missile silos, but you didn't move the bodies. It's <laughs> it's like worst idea yeah. ever. World-destroying weapon yeah. on a place that has, at that time, at least half a million, if not 700,000 potential ghosts. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Like it yeah. doesn't, doesn't it oh, make yeah. sense. It doesn't make sense. You know oh, what else they bury there is amputated limbs. Yeah. It just gets creepier and creepier. Yeah. It was just so much fun to explore that place. Yeah. You know, when we found, we've actually found a hatch. It's like a loss. We found a hatch and went down and there was this other control room. You could see exactly what it was. At that time, when we found the hatch, I didn't know that there was a missile base there. When we went down there, it seemed like a missile silo and suddenly. Obviously, that's what it turned out to be, but imagine being a 13, 14-year-old kid finding something like that. Immediately, we were playing thermonuclear war. Yeah. <laughs> wow. It's like the ultimate playground for little boys. No kidding. 
<laughs> Thank you so much for your time and for sharing these stories. They truly are amazing. There's so much color to them, and it must have been such an interesting place to grow up and have that right there. It's like it must have affected Absolutely. your imagination as an adult and your sure because you've been exposed to things climbing around in abandoned yeah. silos and psychopaths and <laughs> <laughs> a lot. Yeah, the regrettable part about it, honestly, is that might have been the last time I went uh-huh. uh, to the Hard Island. Yeah. Uh, because it was that upsetting. I'm trying to tell the story in a more humorous, funny way, but it's hard. We were very disturbing, regretful to me. Are you still friends with John, the good kid yeah. that was with you? Do you guys ever talk yeah. about that night? I haven't seen John in many years, but I'm sure we can uh, commiserate. Right. It is like Stand By Me or like a Stephen King moment. Yeah. Right now. All right. Yeah, pretty dark. Well, Sully, thank you so much. I hope that you'll call us oh, if anything else weird happens. You seem to be just a few steps away from uh, weird, wild, wacky events, as Johnny Carson would say. That's right. I keep my eyes open for the weird. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for calling. You're welcome, Scott. Thank you. All right. Bye. My name is Evan Archer. Scott and Forrest would like to thank you for partaking in tonight's episode of Astonishing Legends. But right now, a quick message from one of our sponsors. Obviously, if you're listening to Astonishing Legends, you're a fan of podcasts. It kind of goes without saying, but I said it anyway. Well, as you should. Certainly, Forrest and I are fans of the format, and from time to time, we might mention another podcaster on this show as it relates to our discussion. And today, we want to talk about a show that we're really getting into. It covers people's lives who became legends, and it's called Remarkable Lives, Tragic Deaths. Cool title, right? Remarkable Lives, Tragic Deaths takes a closer look at prominent figures who changed history and died tragically, because sometimes it's not what you thought. It's a very unique and entertaining approach to podcasting that harkens back to the old radio days. They have a staff of writers, voice actors, and a truly talented digital production team. And as a couple of guys who have an intimate knowledge of post-production, Forrest and I are really impressed with their production value. They do a really nice job putting the shows together. It's like each episode is its own audio movie. The result being that they honor these individuals by bringing their real stories to life, taking you on a dramatic journey through the life and death of those who've had an impact on society. And within the narrative, the host provides little-known facts and post-mortem analysis. It's a good listen, as they say. So check them out every Wednesday as the show examines a new remarkable life and tragic death. Check out the lives and deaths of Alexander Hamilton, Jimi Hendrix, Amelia Earhart, Grigori Rasputin, And Marilyn Monroe, just to name a few. There's lots of great programs to listen to. So visit iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast directory and search for Remarkable Lives, Tragic Deaths. Again, that's Remarkable Lives, Tragic Deaths. Or visit parcast.com slash lives to start listening now. That's parcast, P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com slash lives. To listen now. And now, back to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Okay, so that's a pretty intense story. <laughs> well, I mean, the first part, and then the second part's a little funny, but I'm still going back to the corpse abuse part. Well, it's not what you usually see from even acquaintances. And when you do see something like that, you don't know how to process it. So I totally get where he's coming at as a kid and also now yeah, as an adult. And what do you do with that kind of a story? I mean, other than try and forget about it, maybe, but you can't. 
And if you're like me, you tell it to other people. I think we're kind of lucky, or I feel like that I was lucky to have heard this story from Sully because this is the kind of thing that I think probably a lot of things happen that are interesting like this, but a lot of the participants might never tell anybody. And it's well, just one of those things yeah. that only the people who were there will know about, and when they die, it'll be gone. It's interesting to me that he chose to share it, and I remember it because, I, like I said, I haven't <laughs> seen him in years. We yeah. stay in touch online, yeah, but I haven't seen him in years. But that story really stuck with me, and I wasn't even there. And when, when right. naturally, when we first started coming up with the podcast, I was like, oh, I got to call Sully. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's a luxury and an indulgence we can do, and hopefully you find that story as interesting as well as a listener. But it's something that you've heard that at a party, like, wait, what? What yeah. I, I I need to know more about this. What happened? And then if it's a good storyteller, he's told it and you're kind of satisfied. There's always a few things that you're never going to know. And there's a few things you can maybe try and find out, but you never get that opportunity. In wrapping this up, David went over it a little bit, the history of Heart Island, but I thought it yeah. would be fun to get a little more specific on that. The Astonishing Research Corps dug up some facts. Yeah, we all chipped in. Yes, we all chipped in. But uh, the city of New York bought the island from a family in the Bronx for $75,000 in 1868. Yeah, it was a lot of money back then. Yeah. It's a lot of money now. In 1869, just a year later, 24-year-old Louisa Van Slyke was the first person buried on the island. At that time, there were still people living on the island in medical quarantine for a yellow fever epidemic. And they were down at the other end, in houses at the other end. Now, since Louisa was buried there... Around a million more people have followed, if you go up to this day. 66,000 of them just since 1980. In the late 50s, the island itself was a prison with over 1,000 inmates on it. Most of them were only serving six months to a year, so it was kind of the place where you went for minor infractions. And according to a former guard, Joseph Bartels, in a 1978 news piece that we have a link to, the inmates liked it there. If you had to be in prison... Hard Island was the place to be. <laughs> well, I suppose. Well, yeah. his own father, I guess, was a guard there for 50 years before him, and he worked there for like 20 years. Yeah. So he describes how the families that lived on the island back then enjoyed living there, and their kids went to school over on City Island. They took the ferry the other way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so they're going, right. When Rikers Island started expanding, they were doing some new construction, and the inmates from Hard Island were all moved over to Rikers, which is not a fun place. <laughs> well, <laughs> not, not on the inside. Yeah. yeah, but they're not meant to be. It's like Alcatraz. It's on an island for a reason because they don't want you walking away very easily from it. So, yeah. you know, Alcatraz, it's cold waters. You have sharks and yeah. there's all kinds of nasties there and not many escapes. Here's some trivia for you about Rikers Island. In 1957, Northeast Airlines Flight 823 crashed on the island after takeoff from LaGuardia, which yeah. is just around the corner killing 20 passengers and injuring 78. 57 inmates and several corrections officers rushed to help. 30 of those inmates who helped wound up being released almost immediately. 16 of them got a six-month sentence reduction by the parole board for Uh, helping out there. uh Today, there are numerous calls now to have Rikers Island shut down. In fact, it was Rikers inmates, and still is, who do all the burying of the dead at Hard Island. And that's why the Department of Corrections oversees Hard Island with very strict no trespassing rules. Oh, yeah. And in fact, people who found out that they had family on Hard Island had to sue the Department of Corrections 
just to get names. Right. The Department of Corrections has just been real uptight about it. Well, there's a few things going on there, I think, because there's active prisoners. and Coming back and forth. They're coming back and forth. And I have a little story, if we have time, about the thriller authors, Preston and Child. You may have seen their ads for their books on uh, national TV Uh as full-time spots. One of them, Mr. Preston and his wife, actually took a little trip to the island illegally. (laughs) Just to take some photos, because he was researching it for their upcoming book, Gideon's Sword. We'll have a link to that. That's a fun little tale. But basically, you don't want to go there because it is trespassing, and they got caught. Yes. <laughs> By corrections officials who were – there was a bus full of prisoners and, like, three guards, three yeah. or four guards. And so you can imagine a bunch of uh, wild and crazy guys in a bus that they may or may not be able to control, and here's this element walking around that they're unaccounted for, mm-hmm. caused a little bit of panic. They didn't get They hurt. almost yeah. got arrested. They wound up at the last minute not getting arrested. Well, the guy, We have a link to their yeah. website where you can read the story. But. They describe some of the buildings and how they got onto the island, so there's a little bit of a description there. They just wanted to take photos and research it a bit, but they're not up for that, the Department of Corrections. They have no sense of humor about that, so they were pretty lucky. Yeah, they came very close to getting arrested, yeah. for real. So. Yeah. Well, Hart Island is now the largest tax-funded cemetery in the world, but it is not the largest cemetery in the world. That would be Wadi al-Salam in Najaf, Iraq. Forgive me if I'm not pronouncing any of that correctly. Wadi al-Salam is a 1,500-acre Shiite Islamic cemetery with over 5 million dead buried there. 1,500 people a year are still brought to Hard Island to this day and buried in 70-foot-long trenches with caskets stacked three high in rows of six. A truck comes twice a week from the city morgues and departs from the off-limits pier at City Island for the ferry over to Hart. This is the same ferry that takes the inmates over in the bus right. to dig the pits. Yeah. Of course, they have backhoes and stuff now, but they're still down there. They take the coffins, I should say, out yeah. of the trucks and lower right. them down into yeah. the... You still need humans to do that. Yeah. yeah. And these guys, I think, are making... In the news piece that we saw from the 70s, they were making 35 cents an hour. I think now they make 50 cents an hour. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. Which right. they can um, store away for the therapy they'll need later. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, yeah, because it, it did affect some people as, as hard criminals as they may appear to be. Some of them are sensitive, and, and it did affect them negatively. Yeah, and continues to. So if the name of the deceased is known, they write it in indelible ink on the side of the coffin, and papers are attached in a waterproof pouch. So there's about 150 adults in each trench or 1,000 infants who are buried in separate trenches. There's only one single or individual gravesite on the island— And it contains the remains of just one child, the first baby to die of AIDS in New York in 1985. It has a special concrete marker that reads SC for special child, B1, baby one. They used to wait 50 years or so and reopen the trenches, compacting what was left of the coffins and remains that were in there and then burying more on top. They don't do that anymore. Now they're tearing down historic buildings on the island to make more room for the incoming unclaimed. There's an organization called the Heart Island Project, founded by filmmaker Melinda Hunt, who made a compelling documentary about it. And the organization has now recovered the names of over 850,000 people buried there through Freedom of Information Acts, and they're tying in a a GPS-searchable database where you can see where people are, and people are able to add information about their loved ones. But it's not just the poor that are there. In a New York Times article entitled... Unearthing the Secrets of New York's Mass Graves by Nina Bernstein, Ms. Bernstein mentions wealthy socialite Ruth Proskauer Smith, 
who lived in the Dakota, the building where John Lennon lived as well, before he was assassinated in front of it in December of 1980. In fact, Miss Smith was probably living there when that happened, but she outlasted Lennon, living 30 more years before dying at the age of 102. In spite of her status and celebrated life, Miss Smith is now in Trench 359 with 144 other people, and her own family didn't know it. She was kind of a recluse? No, nothing of the sort. Mm. What happened was her body was donated to science. Oh, yes, that route. And the uh-huh. family thought, mistakenly, yeah. that when that was done, she would be cremated. They never dreamed that she would be buried in a potter's field. The unused portions. Yeah. Yeah. When families can make identification, they can have loved ones disinterred and move somewhere else. And they do, several hundred a year, it would seem. But there are procedures to follow, and it's not easy. By the way, this article that Miss Bernstein wrote is truly amazing. You can find it online. There's actually some really amazing pictures in there, and there's drone footage of a burial taking place. Oh, it was okay. from just a few years ago, yeah. and it's pretty interesting to see. I believe if you do have relatives and you want to view them, you have to view them from a gazebo. Yeah. You don't I, get to walk around the place. Yeah, you know. and I think they're trying to get that changed. There's a constant sort of legal assault on the Department of Corrections. Right. And, and recently, too, in yeah. the last few years. Yeah, because a lot of people are upset about the way things are handled. You know, in addition to, like, these wealthy people winding up there, stillborn infants go there from the hospitals as well. And in a lot of cases, the mothers aren't even aware they've signed paperwork that says that's what's going to happen. Yeah. It's just part of that, you know, you're checking into the hospital, you know, if, heaven forbid, they're probably not even thinking of that eventuality or that possible outcome if something is – so, you know, that's pretty horrific. And, you yeah, know, you, I mean, but the, the other thing is that, I mean, they have to go somewhere. And, they do. And the eastern seaboard is a very crowded place, I mean, yes. for the city. So and, and cremation you know. is expensive, more well, expensive exactly. than this. Yeah. So that's, yeah. you know, that's another thing. If you watch the documentary online or anything about it, you see these interviews with these inmates who've done the work there. They're scarred for life. Well, it's, they're it's not. Cry, they're crying. Yeah. You know, it's not it's, work for everyone because people who work in funeral homes, they're conditioned to it. It's not like you were suddenly forced to work in a funeral home and have to take care of. Well, uh, I think it's a volume bodies. issue. Yeah. It's, an, it's a hard yeah, thing yeah. to deal with the volume of it. And of course, already being at Rikers Island is depressing enough. But then, you know. Right. That's one of your jobs. Yeah. One of your jobs. But they volunteer. The people that go there are volunteers. Yeah, so right. It's, it's a heavy thing to do, but it makes me think of Covenanter's Prison. You yeah. Know? And that was a, a lot of volume in a very tiny space. That's true. So much so that uh, they were having problems with it in, in its first location and the second. So yeah. it's never a great business to have to deal with, but it has to be dealt with. Yeah. And I don't want to glorify the famous over the poor people or anything like that, but this is interesting to me. There's an Oscar winner. He's possibly the most famous person buried there at this time, I guess, who is in a trench somewhere on the island. His name is Bobby Driscoll. He was a child actor in the 40s and 50s. He was actually the first actor Walt Disney put under contract. He starred in Song of the South in 1946 and Treasure Island in 1950. He was also the voice of Peter Pan and an animation model for Peter Pan, which came out in 1953. For these performances and others, he received an Academy Juvenile Award for Outstanding Performances in Feature Films. This award is a performance by a child actor or actress during the year 1949. Most of the little boy whose performance in The Window and So Dear to My Heart and She Goers and Critics Alike, Bobby Driscoll. Bobby? <laughs> I've been thrilled in my life. <laughs> but I want to thank everybody that had to do it. I want to thank God for giving me such a wonderful mother and father. Thank you. Bobby's big break was in a World War II drama called The Fighting Sullivans. 
So as you can see, the Sullivan name is a running thread tonight. But when Bobby got older, like a lot of child actors, work kind of dried up for him because he had been typecast, in spite of having been called a wonder kid and receiving lavish praise for his acting chops. After doing time at Chino for narcotics... That's over here on the West Coast, right? Yes. Yeah, Central California. He moved to New York City, where he started hanging around Andy Warhol's factory and working on painting. But sadly, this didn't rescue him from his addictions, and he was found dead on March 30th, 1968, just a few weeks after his 31st birthday. No one could identify him, so he wound up on one of those trucks, headed out to the potter's field at Hart Island. Just shy of two years later, his dad was at death's door, and his mom went looking for him. After a fingerprint search, she learned what had become of him. So we point these folks out because they were connected to the larger part of society, but they were no more or less important than anyone else who wound up on Hart Island. That's how you get there. You can't immediately be claimed by family or friends. And so they don't know what to do with you. They can't keep you on ice indefinitely. So again, they have to do something with you. Hi, my name is Becky Kraft. You're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now a quick break for one of the show's sponsors. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Everyone knows these days, posting a job in one place isn't enough to find quality candidates. So, if you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your job on all the top job sites. And now you can. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. It's that easy. Now, you can find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. Just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by over 1 million businesses. And right now, our listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash legends. One more time, to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash legends. Okay, let's get back to the show. All right, so let's talk about Sully's aggressive friend. Yeah, I don't know if I'd call him so much of a friend. Yeah, as, no, as acquaintance. A acquaintance. He was an acquaintance, yeah. Yeah, and to be clear, because when you first told me the story, again, you want to know more like, why is he friends with this guy? Yeah. But that's not the case. I think what happened is he maybe was a little bit of a bully or just a very intimidating presence at school, I think. And maybe, you know, as kids do, you kind of brag about like, hey, well, we have access to a a secret island where cool stuff happens or there's graves and stuff. And so these kids are like, oh, yeah, well, take us there. Yeah. And they kind of get, you know, bamboozled into it. And so next thing they know, they're having to. uh, Well, and you're also in that, and Sully didn't say this, but you're also in that situation sometimes where. If a kid's a little bit older or more aggressive like that, and even charismatic, even if it's a dark charisma, you kind of want to impress him. Yeah, and you exactly. You want to be like right, the cool uh, guy. Exactly, and I should be clear here. We don't know if he was a bully. I think the way Sully described him was that, yeah, he was maybe a little uh, of an intimidating personality. Not in a bad way, but it could be somebody that you want to impress, or maybe you're slightly afraid of them. Before we talk more about him and his behavior, I want to talk about how it frames what feels so wrong about the story and what felt wrong to Sully when he was there and what should feel wrong to you if you're a listener. <laughs> <laughs> well, about, you never know. About the dark side of this story. And that's about the rituals that surround death, which have fascinated mankind for millennia. And every culture 
has its own ceremonies, not only for the dead of the mainstream part of their societies, but for the poor and downtrodden as well. And I thought about how this crosses a species as well, and I thought about elephants. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know that elephants, they mourn for their dead. Well, they have recognition of it and their past fellow elephants. Yeah, they have been seen exploring the bones quietly in silence for long periods of time of dead elephants from their own groups. And they've been known to cry or scream at the death of a matriarch, followed by a long period of silence. Then they cover the dead body and stand with it for up to several days. And they'll put like dirt and branches on it. And it's just interesting to me because there is no common ground between elephants and mankind in terms of communication or cultural sharing. Right. They're one of those animals that we kind of anthropomorphize a lot because, you know, they're intelligent and they seem to have deep feelings, not only for themselves, but for humans as well. Yeah. And scientists have debated whether or not they truly have emotions, but I think it's pretty clear that they do. And that's my personal uneducated opinion. (laughs) Right. But you're right. They care about people too. They've actually been known to bury dead humans they've come across. And they've even buried people that were found sleeping. (laughs) They just thought you were dead. Yeah. In George Page's book, The Singing Gorilla, Understanding Animal Intelligence, he tells the story of a bull elephant that was shot for repeated trespassing in government gardens in Kenya. Once shot, the edible parts were given to a local tribe for food, and the rest of the animal was discarded half a mile away, around 800 meters. Later on that evening, the elephants from that bull's group found what was left, and they took the shoulder blade and a leg bone back to the exact spot where it had been shot. Wow. My point is the proper treatment of a corpse and the ideas around it transcend not only all races and cultures, but in some cases, life itself. So we all know what is fundamentally right and wrong. And the guy that freaked out on Hard Island that long ago night had to know what he was doing was wrong. I see it as in two aspects here. The reason that we're, we so venerate the dead and the care of the body itself is that we still identify with it. It's not like, oh, now it's just a meat bag and the spirit's passed on. You still identify with that person. So you want them to be safe, still, secure, buried, a lot of times with their possessions or things they may use in the afterlife. Yeah. You still care for them. And, I want to be cremated, journey. by the way. A Viking funeral? Going on record. No. Uh, I just, well, that's, I want to be cremated. Yeah, that's on a boat that's lit on fire. Uh, Yeah, no, I know what that is. That's not (laughs) what I'm choosing. Wait, just a regular natural cremation. Yes. Yeah. Well, you still have cremains. Well, they can be spread at the beach. (laughs) Like the big Lebowski. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Hopefully downwind. Right. That's my point. And I think what you're getting at is that here is somebody, I think, that maybe made a mental break in that they distanced themselves from the living person. They dehumanized them in a way. Yeah. In that, well, here's something I can kind of vanalize. Who cares? It's no longer living. Right. Nobody knows who this guy is. He's indigent. When am I going to get this chance again? As morbid as that sounds, in a weird, twisted way, I mean, I get that. But again, that's not normal behavior and certainly why it was so disturbing to the people who did not find it funny. Yeah. I asked Marie from the Research Corps to do some digging, pun intended, on death rituals around the world, especially as it relates to the poor. She found that in Chiang Mai, Thailand, there is a large Chinese population, and the services performed there are a ritual of mixed practices between Buddhism and traditional Chinese funeral rites. Now, according to Chinese Funerals and Chinese Ethnicity in Chiang Mai, Thailand by Anne Maxwell Hill, People fear the dead and the corpse, along with the potential bad luck to which they are exposed at funerals. Many will turn their backs on coffins, 
whenever they are moved, afraid that jostling the corpse might release its ghostly soul to cause them misfortune. They also pound the coffin nails in a hammer wrapped in red cloth that's supposed to protect them from bad luck. Mm. In the book Invisible Deaths, Silent Deaths, Bodies Without Masters in Republican Shanghai, author Christian Henriot states the following. Indigent people or their offspring died in the streets of cities. These were deaths that left no trace and made no noise. They were deaths that went unreported, except perhaps in the records of charity organizations. Corpses picked up and disposed of as soon as they were spotted. Bodies poorly wrapped in bamboo matting urban residents would rather not see. They were socially shameful deaths by Chinese standards, deaths better forgotten as if the individual had never existed. The invisibility of these exposed corpses and coffins was less a physical reality, especially when their number rose into the thousands per year, than a social invisibility, a phenomenon that came to be part of daily life. There's probably no way to make an accurate assessment of the number of exposed corpses and abandoned coffins found in the city. Different sources provide different and contradictory figures. Most of the time, the discrepancy is limited, but during the war, one can be certain that many bodies went unaccounted for. Altogether, the total number of collected corpses and coffins between 1915 and 1951 comes to an astounding figure of 848,759. I just want to cite one more book that she found that I thought was really interesting. This one gets us back to New York City. This is called Newsboy Funerals, Tales of Sorrow and Solidarity in Urban America, author Vincent DiGirolamo. Newsboys were legion in 19th century America, and they came from the lowest ranks of society. They were the sons of day laborers, peace workers, and petty traders. Many were immigrants or the children of immigrants. In the 1850s and 1860s, New York and Philadelphia claimed between 500 and 600 newsboys, most of whom came from poor Irish or German families. This juvenile labor force swelled in the 1880s and 1890s as the number of daily and Sunday newspapers quadrupled, circulations doubled, and 11 million new immigrants, mainly Jews and Italians, poured into the country. By the turn of the 20th century, there were more than 5,000 newsboys in big cities like New York, Boston, and Chicago. Newsboy funerals were pitifully elaborate rituals of pomp and poverty. Most children of the poor were buried as members of a family, church, or ethnic group, not a trade. But between the 1850s and the 1910s, dozens of orphaned or homeless newsboys in Boston, New York, Brooklyn, Philadelphia, Louisville, St. Louis, Chicago, and other cities were publicly laid to rest by their peers and the institutions that ministered to them. In addition to flowers, newsboys took up collections for coffins, plots, and gravestones. They hired hearses, undertakers, and ministers. They drafted letters of sympathy, passed resolutions of condolence, and marched in funeral trains through the same streets in which they sold their papers. Given their association with the press, it is not surprising that stories of newsboys, short lives, tragic deaths, and humbly ostentatious funerals occasionally found their way into the papers. Yet they were also the subject of tracts, sermons, poems, memoirs, illustrations, and not a few Tin Pan Alley tearjerkers. These sources are all part of the vast consolation literature that nourished what is referred to as the sentimental cult of mourning. This is the most poignant part of this here at the end of this. He says... This implies that middle-class Americans were deluded, if not perverted, in sentimentalism, and the bourgeoisie, particularly women and ministers, feigned concern yet evaded responsibilities for the evils of a capitalist industrial order they were helping to usher in. Wow. Well, 
So um, it puts a whole other filter on the idea of Heart Island because it gets at the root of what it really is and the tragedy surrounding it. It's the mass burial of people who couldn't make their way in this world for reasons either within or without their control. That and infants stillborn at a time, especially in the early days when infant mortality soared. So somewhere in all of this, there's a sense of guilt and a cover-up. And when you add the events of that fateful trip that Sully and his acquaintance took to the island in the 70s and the feelings you have and he had that night, they're so much more complex than just reacting to the desecration of a corpse. It's the final insult to an anonymous person whose luck had already run out. It's still a human being, whether you knew him or not, rich or poor, king or pauper. It was life at one time. Yeah. And you, humans, you know, before organized religions, generally had ancestor worship, that you, you revered the people who have passed on before you. Yeah. Because now they're moving to the other world. So I wouldn't say it was sociopathic. I'm not a psychologist. I can't make that designation. But I will say it was a break and a dehumanization for yeah. A moment. Well, and when I first heard the story, I thought we were likely looking at a sociopathic person. But the further I've gotten into it, I didn't know. And yeah. Which brings us to our kind of final part of the story. Right. <laughs> me, me pressuring you to find out who it was? Yeah. Or what happened what to the happened guy? What happened to the guy? And well, you – and it's funny. I didn't really – I, I feel like maybe I didn't want to know. I think I was I, I think afraid. So. We did get the name of the person from Sully. Right. And I looked a little bit. Yeah. And I actually put the arc on it, and they looked a little bit. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it, it wasn't so much that really not to publicize this person. Yeah. It was, I think, the curiosity that we all have. When you see somebody do that, what's the other things that they do? Yeah. Where did this guy end up? What became of him? It was more so just to satisfy my own curiosity, and I'm sure we all do, but these are questions that often aren't answered, and we have to live with that. I also challenge Scott because he's one of those guys, I can find anyone on the planet in five <laughs> minutes, much like uh, Michael Gambon's uh, henchman in Lair Cake. Hey, this is like, I delivered, though, didn't he, I? He did. And, uh, Over the course of a text in about five minutes, <laughs> I because found a guy. Of course, I baited him. But yeah. it wasn't to smear or glorify in any way. Or to out him. Or to out him. But I just, you're curious. It's like, if I'd heard this story from Sully directly for the very first time, it'd be like, well, what happened to this kid? Is he a prisoner? Is he... And where people go firstly is that obviously, well, he's a criminal, probably in jail, probably died in jail, probably violently. That's where you go. We've decided to keep his name to ourselves because he has, in fact, passed away. And we have hard and fast beliefs ourselves about speaking ill of the dead, regardless of the circumstances. Well, and, he can't defend himself. Yeah. You know, so. And so for the purposes of tonight's episode, we're going to call him Charlie. Okay. All right. And for a minute, I thought, wouldn't it be ironic if he wound up buried on Hard Island himself? It's not out of the possibility. And that's how the story would go if it was being written for a book or for the big screen. But life is different. Charlie died of natural causes before he reached middle age. And I would say he died a little younger than he should have. And we even found his tombstone. And, and, we're, and we're pretty sure that this is him. Okay. I confirmed it. And we found his tombstone in the Mount Holly Cemetery in Mount Holly, New Jersey, about 30 miles east of Philadelphia. And he did not turn out to be a sociopath, or a serial killer. He had a pretty productive, normal life and left behind many people who loved him. No one knows what kind of darkness lurks in the heart of ordinary men. But from what we know, again, from the obituary, 
and records we could find, he's turned out to be a pretty normal, regular guy for the most part. Yeah, and I guess we'll never know what came over him that night so long ago. It's also occurred to us it's possible his immediate family has never heard this story. You know, like I was saying earlier, it's not the kind of story you necessarily tell people regardless of your what kind of <laughs> player you were in it, especially if you were the lead character. No, and that's another reason that, not to say that this would somehow make its way back to him, but that's also possible. And imagine if it was a relative of yours that you thought was just a great guy, he's swell, he's so generous, and he beat up a corpse you know, when he had the chance. Yeah. He's not that anymore. And this is what's fascinating to me. People can change. Often they don't. Usually they don't. It's so hard for somebody to do. And as Mary Shelley once wrote, change is the hardest thing for a human being to endure. I'm kind of paraphrasing that there. But people usually don't. But they can. And did this guy totally change? Because he had a pretty regular job. He had what appears to be family and friends that loved him. And he had regular activities and, and nothing kind of creepy. He was not a serial killer. Well, there's one thing we can say. Whatever his personality was, they sought fit to leave the following epitaph on his tombstone. Big Charlie, he did it his way. That's going to wrap it up for tonight's show. We'd like to thank Harry's, the Great Courses Plus, the podcast Remarkable Lives, Tragic Deaths, and ZipRecruiter for sponsoring us. We'll be back in one week with an interview with best-selling author Linda Godfrey about her new book that's right up our alley, Monsters Among Us. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees, and the theme is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com as well as Facebook, Patreon, Twitter, Tumblr, Google+, and Instagram. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night. 